Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. Our chat today is with retired U.S. Air Force Colonel John Wheeler, whose call sign is Press. Colonel Wheeler flew the F-16 Fighting Falcon for most of his career. He was stationed at fighter squadrons in the United States and in South Korea, and he flew combat missions in the Middle East. Colonel Wheeler was one of the first cadre of pilots to develop and train to use the F-16 in support of combat search and rescue missions. Those Sandy missions are typically done with the support of the A-10 Warthog. Colonel Wheeler was also selected to be part of the initial cadre of F-35 fighter pilots in the United States Air Force. His last assignment was as wing commander of the 33rd Fighter Wing, which is a tenant at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida, and is home to the first F-35 training wing under the Air Education and Training Command. Throughout his career, Colonel Wheeler has demonstrated a penchant for training, so our discussion focuses on that and on his approach to leadership. It's a fun, candid discussion, so I hope you'll enjoy this episode of Go Bold. Let's get at it. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala, and I'm your host. And today, I'm very privileged to have on the podcast Colonel John Wheeler. He's a United States Air Force fighter pilot who flew the F-16 Falcon and the F-35. And Colonel Wheeler was also the wing commander of the 33rd Fighter Wing. So I'm excited for this chat because I love fighters. So this is something that I'll never get tired of. And uh, I'm just very thankful for Colonel Wheeler's time. Um, Colonel, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, you bet. And we got to add one word to that. Yeah. Retired. <laughs> yes. Yes. True. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. You know, yes, I should have clarified absolutely retired, but you know what? The rank is always there. And, uh, and so that's, that's the way I like to think of you, but, but absolutely. Yeah. To be accurate. Um, so John, tell me what made you join the military and why did you pick the particular branch that you did? Yeah. The, uh, picking the branch was quite, uh, apparent to me and very easy. It's basically like so many in the military today, uh, family tradition. So I uh, grew up in a family of Air Force, Air Force through and through. My mom's father was a bomber pilot that was uh, trained during World War II, uh, and he retired as a as a colonel uh, and flew just. Tons of hours and, and it was really the, the main inspiration for the flying career part of things. My dad was in the Air Force as well. He was a judge advocate. His eyesight was not so good. Uh, so he was uh, doing the, the legal side of uh, those decisions and worked for the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff and a couple other positions up in the Washington, D.C. area. And that's when I really started to get a little bit more interested in it. And then I had two uncles, one who was a uh, navigator in uh, bombers and tankers, and then another uncle who was in, in services. Uh, and they all retired as 06s. And so it was a uh, family tradition that we had a lot of military in our blood and they were all in the Air Force. So that's what got me interested in the Air Force to begin with. Um, but I really came to it a little bit later in life than many who decide to fly. I didn't grow up going, I'm gonna be a pilot where it really came to fruition is I went to play a, a soccer tournament 
over at the Air Force Academy with a traveling soccer team that I was on in Virginia. Okay. And I saw the Air Force Academy like up there on the hill in the chapel and like beautiful day, bright blue sky. And uh, my, my dad arranged a tour for all the soccer players to take. And that's when I decided, hey, this could be something I want to do. And so I decided to, uh, you know, try to go to the Air Force Academy or get an ROTC scholarship. And I ended up uh, very fortunately being able to go to the Air Force Academy. And then while I was there, uh, that's when I started to do a little bit of flying as part of their curriculum uh, and decided, yeah, I'll, I'll throw my hat in the ring. I'll try to do that. And uh, got picked up for a pilot slot uh, and went to do pilot training. Uh, as I did that, they had a they had a flight screening program at the Air Force Academy. So this was not a uh, the golden hands boy comes to fly the plane. Uh, right. I flew the glider. I actually was on the uh, parachute team while I was there. But as one of our first introductions, I got to fly a glider. And uh, the, the weather was not very good in the weeks that I did the course. And so I only got a few rides. Uh, and I, I, I did get to solo, but I wasn't, I wasn't that good. Uh, and so uh, come later, I, I got to fly a flight screening program called the T3, okay. which was only there for a few years. Okay. Uh, where they were flying those out of the Air Force Academy. Uh, and I was not good at all in the <laughs> T3. I was, uh, I was uh, you know, I was what they call a ham fist. Uh, like I, I had no, I, I was having trouble keeping up with all the things you have to do when you're flying an airplane. I had no real experience with it. And I was actually on my last chance at that, uh, at that flight screening program oh, wow. where we're, uh, and I was very nervous because I was afraid I was going to have to go tell my grandfather that I have not made the cut and I'm not going to be a pilot. Uh, and so I was down on my last chance and uh, was able to squeak by on that ride. It was prior to my solo. And they were like, you're doing you're doing better, but you're just I'm not comfortable sending you up alone. Right. I did a pre elimination ride and uh, the instructor said uh i actually made a, a, a pretty good mistake and that one i turned like in front of another plane okay so that was like an automatic you're done right so I was like hey this is three strikes you're out i got one more chance and that right actually went well uh and did did okay for the rest of the program awesome. uh, and, and then i i went to grad school for a year and while i was there i i decided you know what i really needed some experience in the air so i I used my own money and went and uh, paid for a private pilot's license and started to build some experience. And it was just little Cessna 152s, 172s. Yep. That, that helped me to perform much better when I went to pilot training and, and, uh, and then started to do pretty well at that point. That's awesome. For those that are listening, I guess it just goes to show you that hard work perseverance and having a goal and setting your yeah. mind to it. It, it because you didn't have to pay your own way to kind of do the private pilots training but um that just kind of showed that that you were committed to it i think that's awesome yeah that's one of the things i tell all young people who are looking at it uh if you've got the ability to there are actually quite a few programs where you don't have to be the one to pay for it there there are some programs 
as they try to attract, uh, you know, we've, we're in a pretty big pilot shortage, at least in the U.S. And so they're trying to attract talent to that. Mm-hmm. Take advantage of those things because it's not just a, a way to introduce yourself to whether or not you want it. It actually gives you a pretty big leg up when you go to pilot training and you have any experience at all that you can fall back on. It's a little unnatural to be flying a plane. So any experience you have whatsoever will only help you. Uh, so I, I tell everybody, look for those opportunities, Civil Air Patrol, uh, you know, summer programs that are offered at different colleges, those sorts of things are, are worth your time to determine if it's something you want to do, but also to give you an advantage, even if you know you want to do it, like go get that advantage uh, and you'll, you'll perform better by doing it. Yeah. What, what great advice and look at what you can achieve. You know, you go in your case, somebody that was kind of on the precipice of maybe not making it to ending up being a wing commander of a fighter wing. That's awesome. A little, little luck in there along the way as well as I'll uh, explain to you as we go. Yeah. Well, I think there's a little bit of luck in, 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 yeah, in, in most things that we try to try to achieve, but, uh, but it's a, a lot of hard work. That's that's without doubt. Um, so tell me about, uh, you know, you've, you've gone through the academy and then you get selected to, to continue on flying. Uh, where did you end up next as you kind of started your, flight, your, your actual Air Force flight training? Yeah, so I did my one year of graduate school in the active duty. Um, so I was on a, a, a graduate school program from the Air Force Academy with the stipulation that I would come back and teach at some point, which I, I never ended up going back and teaching, but awesome. they, they never tracked me down for that. Uh, <laughs> right so on. I did that for a year and then I went to pilot training at uh, Vance Air Force Base in Oklahoma. Okay. Uh, did the year there and, and it went really pretty well. Uh, and then I got the chance at the end of that. To, um, in those days, at least, they would rank order the class. And then when it got to your rank, you got to stand up and say what aircraft, uh, if it was left for you, uh, right. then you got to pick. And so I was, uh, I had gone to pilot training and I decided based on some influences I'd had at the Air Force Academy and some people I met along the way that I wanted to be an A-10 pilot. Like okay. to me, the 810 is just awesome. Like a, a plane built around a gun. Yeah. Love that aircraft. Uh, low and slow. Like it, it just sounded fantastic. Yeah. And then as I went through pilot training itself, though, and I started to get towards the end, I had a couple of folks who had just come back from a active duty tour flying the F-16. And they were in my T-38 flight and that my primary instructors. And I started to hear a little bit more about the multi-role that that aircraft had mm-hmm. and the ability to do both air to air and air to ground. And uh, I've always been a, a, a pretty much a, a I, I don't have any like expertise in one certain area. I've always been that way. It's, it's been more of like, I like math, but I like the, you know, the liberal arts as well. Sure. Uh, and I, I've never really excelled. Like I wasn't like, I'm going to be an engineer. I, I kind of liked a little bit of everything. And right. so that multi-role really appealed to me. And then I had uh, one of the F-16 guys said, uh, if you ever look at an A-10 throttle, you know what you'll see? You'll see it's bent. I was like, what do you mean it's bent? And he's like, everybody in an A-10, at some point, they needed to go faster. And they pushed it up to its limit, and it wouldn't go anymore. And so they actually <laughs> bent the throttle. And, awesome. and this, this guy, uh, this A10 guy, is like, yeah, that's actually true. 
And when I stood up to make my decision, uh, I told everybody I was going to pick an A10. And then it just like, as I stood up to make my decision, I was like, I'm going to take a Viper. So in your dream sheet, in your mind, you had a 10 as number one, but when you stood up. Yeah. And they didn't even do it. It was a, it was like a video teleconference Oh no! Kidding. or maybe it was just a telephone teleconference in those days. I guess it was a telephone teleconference of all the different pilot training bases. Right. And they go, here's the drop one to 30 yep. of the different, you know, fighters and bombers that are available. Mm-hmm. And they would go, okay, number one from Columbus, number one from Vance, number one from Del Rio, uh, from Laughlin. And they just go through that and number two, number two, number two. And so, uh, you know, in, in the course of that, I got, I stood up and, and saw what was on the board. And uh, I told that, I told all the A-10 pilots that, that were the instructors that I was going to pick an A-10. And then I stood up and picked an <laughs> F-16 and they were not happy. <laughs> Oh, they've been working on me but uh that's <laughs> my heart took me to the uh to the f-16 to the viper that's awesome yeah. <laughs> okay so <laughs> I, i'm 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 laughing because some other guests on this podcast are a10 pilots so i think they'll get a oh i i love the a10 i, yeah. I still love the a10 but that's just you know whatever came over me <laughs> and then there's no looking back at that point. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No looking back. So, uh, so you chose Vipers and, uh, where, where was the next stop after that? It was to Luke, uh, okay. to Luke. And that's where I did my, uh, uh, FTU. So initial introduction to the aircraft, uh, pretty long, uh, program there. Mm-hmm. And you get the introduction to the way it works is they do the building blocks. So you, you start with how do you just fly the aircraft, how do you do instrument procedures, uh, all the sim stuff with the emergency procedures, uh, as you'd imagine. And then you start moving into the, uh, the tactical building blocks, starting with one-on-one with uh, BFM, so basic fluid maneuvering, offense, defense, high aspect, uh, and, and just went through that program. And, uh, and then just keep building from there. Then it's 2v2, uh, you know, 2v1 with the BFM kind of rolled into that for air combat maneuvering, uh, and then all the way up to uh, a a high-end air-to-air mission of four versus X, however many uh, that you could bring with regeneration of of adversaries and and that sort of thing. And then the same thing with the air-to-ground, and at that time it was all uh, what they would call dumb bombs Mm -hmm. uh, for the most part. Um, So we would just like roll in, find a wire, like, get get that 45 degree dive and uh and nail the wire and nail the target and i really enjoyed the air to ground side uh even more than the air to air at that time and uh who won the air to ground top gun award because that was that was my passion i really enjoyed the the air to ground stuff and then close air support and then uh put it all together with the opposed surface attack uh with fight your way in fight your way out and then, of course, the large force exercise, kind of the culminating event of, of the program. Uh, so it was, you know, nine months all together, about six months of that uh, flying and going through the program and and really uh, just love getting introduced to all the different aspects. And, and I, I did like the multi-role uh, flavor of that. That's awesome. Uh, I'm going to back you up for one second, just because I'm, I'm keen to know, um, what was your first flight? in the Viper, like, because surely it's, it's a memorable kind of milestone, but 
yeah. it's a high performance jet, right? And you're going from right. a T, you did do IFF and T 38s. So, yeah. yeah so you, you were bet. in a jet before, but yeah, it was super exciting. The first flight I got in a Viper was actually not at the controls because I had arrived there about a month prior and, and they uh, had several D models. So a, a backseat available and not mm-hmm. all the rides required uh, instructor in the back, student in the front. A lot of times the instructors would be off direct supporting a student in an aircraft with a backseat open. And so my first ride in F-16 was uh, in the backseat just uh, watching two instructors do high aspect BFM and getting introduced to the G. And uh, it was a pretty good wake up call as to uh, <laughs> what that environment can do to you, especially when you're not the one in control of it. Yeah. Uh, felt, felt pretty sick to my stomach, but uh, fortunately it didn't make him return to base or, or throw up or anything, but uh, it got my attention. Uh, and then, so I was a little bit nervous, like, am I going to get sick in this aircraft? And once you get, on the controls, though, that was all gone for me. It was no problem once I actually uh, got on the controls. I think it's like anything else, you know. So I, I had the the great fortune to go uh, flying in an F eighteen. Um, awesome, a Bravo, yeah, and it was it was awesome. Like, I mean, what an amazing uh, experience. But um, yes, when you're not actually putting in control inputs, you're yeah. just along for the ride, you know? Yeah. And even if somebody tells you, Hey, I'm going to turn right, or I'm going to turn like, you know, whatever. It, yeah. It, yeah. That gives you a little bit of preparation, but you don't know how hard they're going to turn or bank, you know? Yeah. And, well, um, but yeah, if you're flying, you know what you're doing to the aircraft. That's right. Yeah. One of the things you do uh, in the syllabus, at least at that time you did quite a bit was low altitude pops. Okay. So for a low altitude pop, you're you're down at 500 feet and 500 knots, driving directly at the target, and then you'll take a little uh, jink to the side, climb to visually acquire the target, and then try to find the wire as you come down. And those are all very abrupt movements. And then do a safe escape to get away from the the frag pattern of the bomb as as you kind of turn away right after you release. Okay. And so when I was in the back seat, waiting my turn to start my course. I went on one of those rides. And when you combine that low altitude, unanticipated maneuvers for somebody who doesn't really know exactly what's going on. And then the heat of a Phoenix summer. Uh, right. It, and it gets pretty bouncy there in the desert. Oh, yeah. Yeah, That's yeah, enough yeah. To, to make you not feel so well. Yeah. You know, when I was flying, it was the weirdest thing. Um, so it's funny that you mentioned A-10s earlier. Uh, when I had my F-18 ride, um, prior to the ride, I spoke with an A-10 pilot and I said, mm-hmm. how do you manage the Gs? And he said, well, okay, you know, you know, the G straining maneuver, you're familiar with all that. I'm like, yep. And then he said, uh, one thing that people do wrong is that they also, you know, they're told don't tense up all your muscles, but he goes, what I would recommend is try to keep your upper extremities, your arms relaxed, relaxed. Exactly. And so that was advice that if I didn't hear, I would have tensed everything up, you know? And so that, that was good advice. And so throughout the whole flight, we were, uh, it was a, I was up in a two ship of F-18s and, um, you know, we were doing some BFM stuff and what have you, but I did fine. I didn't throw up or anything like that, but I, the, part where I felt the most queasy was on final just coming back to the to the airport and I'm like 
This that's when weird. that's when everything starts to kind of settle down and yes. your body starts to catch up that you've just gone through an experience. Right. So I gave a lot of incentive rides and, and familiarization flights to a lot of people who had never flown in, in a fighter. And that was very common, like on our TV, after we were done with all the maneuvers, then it started to hit people that they didn't feel so well. Right. Um, yeah. But congratulations, because the most for the most part, like I'd say at least 50 percent of the folks that that flew got actively sick. <laughs> such a different environment so if you were able to avoid that whether you felt queasy or not if you kept it down get on you jody uh thanks man uh, well i did keep it down but i tell you i was worried about it for a while i was like yeah. i don't want to be the guy that comes back with a doggy bag you know like no. <laughs> you know, there's, so. there's no there's no shame though as long as if you come back with a doggy bag as long as after you do it you want to keep going yeah it's uh you can rally man <laughs> right on <laughs> uh well so so that's super cool okay so then then let me switch uh, switch gears on you and say what was it like the first time you were at the controls yeah when i was at the controls um honestly i was like so focused on trying to do the things right on the ride that i was supposed to do and i can't say it was just like oh my gosh this is so awesome (laughs) right uh with the exception of the the uh you know thrown in the afterburner for the first time on the runway and feeling the stages kick in Mm -hmm. one at a time because you could feel them one after another uh in the the pratt and whitney that engine you could actually feel the kicks right so as we did that rolling down rolling down the line that that was pretty cool but then I was like, okay, wh- when, when do I turn? When do I make my radio call? So, uh, you know, people often ask me, like, is it just so much fun when you're up there flying? I, well, it, it really is a, a job. Like, I, it, I'm yeah. much more thinking about what I'm doing. Uh, there have been occasions where it's it's been, you know, where you have the time to realize how much fun it is. But usually I'm just trying to stay ahead of the jet and not fall behind uh, mentally. Uh, so. Yeah. Less enjoyment and more uh, enjoyment after you reflect on the fact of, hey, that was super cool. I just flew my first ride today. And yeah. then it felt great. And I think that is that is a function of being a professional because, yes, you are now, you're not going for a joyride, right? Like, right. I mean, you know, on one hand, it's like, this is super cool. But on the other hand, it's like, yeah, I have to employ this thing properly. Like, I mean, even if it's just, just getting familiar with the jet, but you got to... Right it's professional right so yeah and you're you're usually flying with somebody else too so there's there's always that uh danger that's not just your own mistake your, right. your mistake's not just going to affect you it's going to affect someone else and right. so uh all of that you feel the weight of that uh and more than anything as a student you feel the weight of like having a grade sheet right on you that you have to perform to pass to the next ride yeah yeah so you're, you're not a failure so uh those those things are front of mind yeah, and that's come up with uh, some of my other guests as well. Is that you are in essence every step of the way in your career, you're being graded, absolutely all the way along. Yeah, uh, how was it for you uh, embracing? Because you know you had family that was in the military. How how was it for you to embrace military culture? Because it's one thing to be a pilot; it's another thing to be an officer too, right? So, right. Uh, I think it was. Um, it was not a super difficult transition. And I think that was mostly because going to the academy, uh, there it was a, a pretty good effort to break you down and build you back up. And so 
you know what you're built into. Uh, and there's no question that I'm giving up my independence and like all that was, that was gone. Like, the, the moment I, I started to like going into survival mode at the Academy sure. and then you quickly build that camaraderie with the, the people who are in the same situation as you are. Uh, and you, you figure out pretty quick how to uh, assimilate into that environment. So uh, I, I think I had long since done that by the time I was an officer and, and going to pilot training, I, I, I had, you know, I'd surmounted that challenge where I, I knew that this was a culture that I wanted to be a part of. And there, there was no adjustment required at that point. Cool. Cool. Uh, and I guess one question that I would have you kind of along a similar line, though, is as you go up in rank, you certainly get yep. more and more responsibilities. Yeah. Um, and I guess the thing is, is that each rank, you know, it's not like you just get a rank and then, you know, you're off to the next rank. You know, you spend time there, you develop your craft sure. and then it prepares you perhaps for the next level. Um, what was your leadership style? It's a. Uh... It's a unique journey as a as a uh, fighter pilot, especially because okay. you're in charge of nothing initially. <laughs> you are in charge of basically your aircraft and yourself, and, and that's it. You're not in a direct leadership role of other people for quite a long time because right. it's there's you know there's so much technical demand of being able to perform the job. Uh, you know, everybody who you're flying with as you start out ranks you. So you're not telling anybody what to do. You're on receive mode for, for a long time, which, you know, is, is a lot different than the leadership experiences that you get when you're in, say, the Army or, or the Navy, uh, where you're right from day one, you are leading, uh, you know, troops or, or sailors. And, and you have that responsibility legally right from the get gate. Uh, mm-hmm. And you have a chance to more ease into it, mm-hmm. uh, which has got its goods and its bads. And so on the good side for me, it was a good opportunity to be able to, to watch for about the first, uh, you know, six years of, of my career, uh, watch other leaders do what they do and be able to just absorb that and watch different styles without being on the spot of, you know, my, my leadership or people are depending upon my leadership in a formal capacity. Uh, so I, I try to take advantage of that. And I'd say from a, a, uh, a leadership style, I kind of adopted the try to lead with humility as best you can. I found by observing others that uh, I always respected those who were willing to come out and say, I screwed this up or I need help or I'm not the expert at this. And I could see right through those who tried to put on a false bravado and, uh, you know, be something that they thought the position required them to be. Now there is a certain amount of that that is required in certain circumstances, but I think for the most part, the people you lead are pretty understanding that you're not going to have every answer to everything. And the more you bring people in early, uh, and let them know that, you know, you've got your vulnerabilities and, 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 and whatnot. I found that to be the most effective. And I, I found that because when I was on the receiving end of leadership, I always respected that the most. And I never thought any less of somebody who was willing to say, man, I, I just don't know that answer or you're a better expert at this than I. So let, let me kind of take your counsel on it. Uh, and so I tried to uh, keep that with me throughout my career is, is being willing to 
uh, defer and, and, uh, and, and then the other thing is having empathy for those that you lead. It's very easy to, uh, divorce yourself from that situation. Once you've moved on to another rank and you forget what it was like to, you know, be at the bottom of the totem pole. So uh, trying to always put yourself in other people's position and have empathy, I think are, are, uh, the two leadership traits that I tried to embrace the most, uh, probably those two. Uh, I love that you said humility, because I think that's just it. If you approach things with humility and, and you you acknowledge that you don't know everything, <laughs> nobody does. So, yeah. you know, I think the worst leaders perhaps are the ones that might not know stuff, but then also think they know it, you know, and, and try to fool or, everybody. Or pretend they know it. Yes, yeah. right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's not a way to lead. That's for sure. Um, yeah. And I certainly, you know. I, I didn't execute to perfection the things that I hold dear. There were times where, you know, I, I made mistakes in terms of like overreaching or, or, you know, trying to like fake it till you make it type of thing and sure. not asking for help when I probably should have. I, I made those mistakes, but uh, I tried to come back to a place of, you know, when you do make a mistake like that and your ego gets the better of you, which tends to happen a lot for fighter pilots, especially. <laughs> Uh, being willing to come back and, and make it right afterwards, not being too proud to go, hey, you know, nobody's going to think less of you because you're willing to humble yourself in front of them. So uh, that that always served me well. Yeah, I think I think it actually uh, would serve anybody well that way. You know, if you say, hey, look, you know, I, I apologize or I was overreaching or what have you. Um, yeah. I think you, you know, you gain a lot of credibility by being honest and just owning up. Hey everyone, I'd like to take a quick moment to thank our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. Since the 1960s, the Cubic Corporation has been in the business of instrumenting mission-critical training and operational environments to deliver truth in training, and that is the data sets that will help operators understand what happened. Cubic is expert at providing a blended training environment, which brings in the capability to replicate adversaries at scale and make them more realistic for those undergoing training. Cubic's multi-domain training solutions are joined by SPEAR, which stands for Simplified Planning, Execution, Analysis, and Reconstruction. SPEAR is the next generation of multi-domain training, common operational picture, and common data model, which is helping operators spend more time reviewing why things happened instead of just what happened. We'd like to thank Cubic for being a teammate to Go Bold, and we encourage you to visit them at cubic.com. Now let's get back to our chat. So with respect to your F-16 career or your days flying mm -hmm. the F-16, uh, you know, there's various different roles that the F-16 can have. And it, obviously it's a multi-role aircraft, but there are squadrons that are focused on certain missions or certain yeah. uh, skill sets. Um, yeah. So did you go down a particular path uh, in, the, in the community? Yeah. So um, the initial branch out for the F-16, at least at that time, and it still holds true today, was... Uh, you could either go to the block 40 or the block 50. And the block 40 was uh, very much, uh, you know, air ground focused primarily. Uh, it did not do the seed roll. So it was very much uh, bombs on target on time, uh, self-defense, get yourself in and out. 
of a target area. The block 50 was more of the, uh, the suppression enemy air defenses and then a little bit more air-to-air focus for uh, you know a, a defensive counter-air type of mission or, or that sort of thing. So okay. I went down the block 40 road uh, there at the beginning and uh, that was really a function of what base do you go to first and which one do they have? And so I, I wanted to uh, do my first uh, tour in Korea. And oh, cool. so that was a, a block 40 squadron that I went to there. And uh, we, we were responsible for night one of the, of the war and taking down uh, some high priority targets. And uh, it was, it was a good uh, introductory tour for me because it was very focused on a very particular mission set. Uh, and it was also without much distraction when you're in Korea and you know exactly what the job is if you're going to be called upon to do it. And so uh, to me, that was a per- perfect way to start, uh, to start my career out. Uh, and then just getting to perfect as much as I could the multiple mission sets that the F-16 has to include close air support, uh, you know, Xint is what they call it, which is basically uh, you know, you're taken off into an area for, uh, to find targets that you don't know what they are beforehand. And then, of course, the interdiction missions, which is to take down those targets that you have pre-planned and, and you're part of a larger force package. And then doing some air-to-air stuff as well. So there's no shortage of uh, missions to be practicing there on the, on the first assignment. So that's kind of the way I got started uh, when I went from my first assignment in Korea to Hill Air Force Base in Utah, mm-hmm. uh, we were more on the hook for global response. Um, and as part of that, um, leading up to, uh, we were doing no-fly zones and those sorts of things over uh, northern and southern Iraq. And then uh, due to some, some political decisions, uh, it was determined that the A-10 was not gonna be able to go to Turkey to do combat search and rescue missions. Mm-hmm. So I got into uh, F-16 combat search and rescue, which was something very new because that was always the Sandy mission right. was always an A-10 mission right. and it was becoming apparent to uh, OIF in 2003 that uh, the A-10s were not going to be able to deploy to Turkey and they still needed that mission to be performed uh, from Turkey. And so uh, my squadron basically spun up for uh, the combat search and rescue mission, or at least a very small cadre of uh, instructors uh, and pilots did that. And so I was one of the, the first couple uh, to figure out that program and, uh, and develop it for the others to, to train to. And so I, I found that to be a very challenging mission. Loads of respect for the A-10s who are such experts at it. Uh, and, and got to know how to how to rescue somebody on the ground, which you know is is really the ultimate uh, uh, commitment that we have. That if you get shot down, we're going to do everything we can to get you out. So being the executing arm of that, uh, to have the awareness of where the enemies are, bring the helicopters in to make the pickup, uh, actually orchestrate that, fly cover for the pickup helicopters, the Sandys who are who have done the mission. Uh, that to me was was really a, a a different mission that I'd never done before, and one that I was uh, thrilled to be a part of. That sounds awesome. Like, I mean, it's it's such a niche kind of capability there. And- That's right, especially in F sixteen. It's just it's not right. something that uh, that we had really done. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so it, you flew, uh, obviously, over Korea. You flew over um, Iraq. Um, from a combat perspective, what is your most vivid memory? Or you obviously flew during combat. Um, right. So what what was that like? Because, you know, a whole generation of pilots grew up, in essence, being combat pilots. There right. was the generation before didn't necessarily have that, you know, well, depending when you served, but uh, right. so it's kind of interesting to even ask about combat. Cause it's like almost everybody's got combat experience. Right. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I have some pretty vivid memories of, of, uh, of my experiences. As I told you, we were trained to do the combat search and rescue mission from Turkey. Mm-hmm. And then the way that the, the effort panned out, Turkey ended up saying, we're not going to have any basing here for the 2003 OIF. So we, we ended up not deploying right away. And then we came in uh, to uh, flying out of Qatar a few months later after things had started. And so uh, my most vivid combat experience, really, by the time we got there, the main hostilities had kind of died down. And, uh, and things were a little slow, at least to start. Uh, and then we had a, a particular mission that, uh, that I got to fly as part of where I wasn't supposed to be flying and uh, was supposed to be on crew rest, but we got an actual strike mission that was gonna happen. Okay. And so the people who were supposed to fly went to do the strike mission. And I went to be the on alert close air support fighter and ended up getting called up to the the efforts that were happening after the strike had happened and the special forces were going in to uh, basically evaluate the success of the strike against some insurgent targets. And and so that was really my first experience with seeing the actual combat part of things and and not just doing armed overwatch. Uh, And so that that was definitely a, a formative experience for me. I'm sure it was. And I have to ask this, John, because, you know, when you talked about kind of being more aligned or more interested in the air to ground aspect of the F-16 and and originally it was, uh, you know, dumb bombs, I suspect that as you kind of went along, that changed to be precision yeah. munitions. Absolutely. So the uh, the way it worked for our training at that time is we didn't have enough targeting pods for our training aircraft to all have them. Okay. So we did the first portion of our training for the F-16, doing all dumb bomb deliveries. Okay. And then we transitioned to uh, a targeting pod pop-off, if you will. So we went to a different squadron and did a, about a, a eight-ride program to learn how to use a targeting pod. And then w- once I went to Korea, that's that's what it was all about. It was all the right. targeting pod. I mean, that's that's what we were going out there to do, at least for the the first you know, several, several weeks of how things would unfold. And then it would probably switch to general purpose bombs after that. Uh, So really the targeting pod was the primary way we were employing both in Korea. And then, uh, and then when I got to, uh, to Utah and was training from there, then we also got the thing called the the JDAM and started to learn how to uh, use GPS guided bombs. And and, uh, we were just on the cusp of doing that when, uh, when we started uh, our deployment in 2003. And and those are primarily the the weapons that we dropped when uh, over at at Qatar and in Iraq. 
So the one thing that I think about that, though, is, you know, you talked about flying the line and doing a 45 degree bomb run, but with GPS guided bombs or or GBUs, um, it's not as much of the dive anymore. You're just kind of, or am I wrong? Yeah. Well, you've got a couple of ways you can employ in general, if you know what the target's going to be beforehand, uh, you're not going to do a diving delivery for the most part, except for as a contingency. Uh, it's more of a, it's a level release and, and then a turn to have the right angle to let your targeting pod uh, see the target and actually lock in on, on what you're trying to hit. Uh, mm-hmm. But there are dynamic missions as well. If you're doing the, the CSAR mission, for example, mm-hmm. at that time, you don't really know what you're going to be trying to hit. And so uh, in that case, you're actually now going into a wheel or flying a big circle over top of the area of interest. And then once you find it, you do do a diving delivery where you where you're it's it's not that's quite the same where you're trying to put the exact aiming reference simply visually, but you're you're still trying to uh, get the bomb on the right wire. And then as you pull off, now you're having to go from the visual maneuver to get into the targeting pod and get the final guidance to happen. So it is a little bit more diving once you're into the more dynamic portions of the mission. Okay, that's interesting, and certainly more busier then. Yeah, it's a little uh, like everything kind of happens there uh, all at once. So a lot of our training would be dynamic situations yeah. uh, for close air support, and then you're trying to find a target, get your weapons released on it as quickly as possible, and and then make sure you actually hit it because it's obviously more important to be accurate when uh, you've got troops in contact or in close proximity. Totally. Totally. So how did you get from the F-16 over to F-35? And I know we're jumping a number of years here. I don't want to gloss over anything that might be important. So, you know, just kind of curious, what would be your next big kind of milestone in your career? Yeah, if if we went assignment by assignment, we'd probably be here for too long. So we'll do a little bit of jumping around. Um, So one of the big moves I had kind of after the the stuff in Utah was to go back to Luke Air Force Base to do uh, training of of new F-16 pilots because I really uh, loved that mission and and got into it. And then I went to Air Force Weapons School up at uh, Nellis Air Force Base in in Las Vegas uh, to become more of an expert. So I see the the weapons officer of the squadron as the head IP. So you go to the weapons school, you get the latest and greatest of uh, what we're doing for tactics, techniques, procedures. And then you go back and you make sure everybody is executing to that standard or changing the tactics to be more relevant. Uh, and that's the way we keep everything up to date. So the weapons school plays a very key role in that. So okay. I did that at the weapons school. Uh, I did my a, a pretty long tour there at Luke teaching new pilots. I went off to uh, a staff tour in the Pacific at PACAF. Okay. And then from there, they opened a, a requisition for uh, pilots of this new airplane called the F-35. And they said, if you want to be, you know, one of the first pilots of the F-35, then here's what you have to do. And you, uh, you know, fill out your application and get your endorsements and all that kind of thing. And then okay. they'd have a boarded process to determine who those, uh, the first would be. Uh, and they did that actually for the first couple of uh, tranches of, of pilots to fly the F-35. So I said, heck yeah, I'm on the staff right now. I want to go fly something. And yeah. I certainly would love to go fly 
you know, the newest aircraft coming out. So I, I put my uh, hat in the ring there and uh, was fortunate enough to get picked up as one of the initial cadre of the F-35, which was standing up. So this is, um, you have test pilots who are the first to actually fly it. Mm-hmm. And then you go from developmental test to operational test. And so for the F-35, they decided based on the growth chart that was predicted, we're going to need so many pilots so quickly, we really need to get a uh, FTU, a training unit, uh, more in advance than we have for any other aircraft in the past. So we're going to have our initial cadre be the ones who uh, basically are the instructor pilots at the training unit so that they can train the operational test pilots and then the first operational pilots and that we could grow as quickly as we needed to based on the projected aircraft deliveries. So I got selected to be part of the initial cadre with uh, uh, 10 other pilots and then came to Eglin Air Force Base where we stood up the first unit, uh, stood up the F-35 unit here with them. Uh, But at that time, uh, things got slowed down a bit in the actual fielding of the plane. Mm -hmm. And so I was here basically preparing the way, uh, but we didn't have any jets yet. And so we were actually flying F-16s that were on loan from Luke Air Force Base in Arizona while we were waiting for the jets to come. And just the way the timing worked out, the Air Force always needs to add an assignment. They need to get something out of you after they've trained you for that mission. So it got late enough in in my assignment that they weren't going to get much out of me if they let me fly the F-35 when it came which is about a, a year plus after I'd gotten here. And so I said, well, you know, if, if it makes more sense, uh, then send me back to the F-16 again. So I never actually flew the F-35 as part of the initial cadre, okay. although I helped kind of stand up the first base and, and then we would fly the simulator and things like that. Sure. And then went back to the F-16 and at the F-16, I did a couple other interesting things in uh, my career in terms of staff and school and okay. those sorts of things. Uh, until I finally got up to the, the level of squadron command. And I did that at an F-16 training unit there at Luke, teaching uh, both brand new pilots to fly. And then we were the uh, Air Force's F-16 forward air control schoolhouse. So oh, cool. my squadron had both ends of that mission. So training facts and training br- brand new B course, what we call them basic course students, and so that, that was our job in, in that squadron. And that was just a fantastic job. See both ends, like one of the most complex missions we can do. And the brand new person who's never even touched the jet before and kind of being prepared for both ends of that mission. And so that just like cemented my passion for training pilots uh, and specifically uh, the fighter pilots uh, on that. And, and that's, that's where I did my squadron command. Did a couple more staff tours. Went over to uh, Korea again, and this time I was there as the vice wing commander at Kunsan. Okay. So the other base in Korea from yep. the first one I went to was Osan. Osan. Uh, yep. So this was down at Kunsan with the Wolf Pack. Uh, spent a year there without the family, and uh, uh, you know we're, we're basically back to the on alert type of uh, missions and, and being ready to uh, help defend South Korea. Mm-hmm. Did that for a year, and then. Uh, it came time for wing command, uh, and I wasn't sure if I was really competitive for that or not, and, but they let you throw in your dream sheet. And I saw on the list that the 33rd fighter wing, which is down here at, uh, 
Eglin Air Force Base in Northwest Florida was available. I was like, really good schools for the kids, beaches, and the F-35. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, what the heck? So yeah, I threw right. my name in for that. And I looked at the, the list of other available candidates. And just based on the age of the aircraft and, and those sorts of things, there really wasn't anybody who had a whole lot of F-35 experience that was at that point in their career. Right. Uh, and so I at least had some experience. I hadn't actually yeah. flown it, right. but they're like, well, this is the best guy we got. I guess we'll <laughs> let him give it a shot. And so I, I, uh, I did that as my last assignment in the Air Force was to be the wing commander of the 33rd fighter wing and train new F-35 pilots. That is awesome. So, you know, that theme of training certainly yeah. uh, has, has stuck with you. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's, that is what's in my, uh, you know, there's, there's no higher job satisfaction for me than to take someone who has no experience. Uh, they have experience as a pilot, but not with any sort of weapons employment uh, vehicle and bring them into their first major weapon system and teach them this is what you need to do. Like that amount of influence that you have on a, a, on a new pilot is, is very powerful. It's a, it's a uh, and it's something you know that the security of the, of the force and, and the performance of, of the Air Force of the future is completely dependent. And I learned through watching it over my career that there's a huge difference between those who are extremely well-trained and those who are not as well trained either because they're brand new or they're just, you know, not paying as much attention to the training or, or those sorts of things or how seriously they take it. Uh, the capability of an aircraft, no matter what it is in the hands of a well-trained pilot is exponentially higher than the capability of that same aircraft in the hands of a, of a pilot who can't process the information as quickly or does not have the situational awareness of the battle space that's around them. Hmm. And so that became really uh, what I was passionate about during my active duty career. Uh, and, it, and it's also what I'm passionate about now post the Air Force. You know, I've only been out of that business for about a half a year, but as I looked to the landscape of what was out there for me next, mm -hmm. for me, it was, you know, I, I knew I could go fly for the airlines and make lots of money. And you know, some ways that sounded pretty good, but uh, I think there would be a sense of fulfillment that would be lacking. Uh, and so I looked at it as more of a, how, how can I continue to do the thing I love, which is to have some effect on the training of pilots. Cause it's really important. It's not always as, as well resourced as the combat capability of, of the aircraft. Right. Uh, and so I, I looked out at the defense industry landscape to see what ideas were out there, what different things are different companies doing uh, to advance training uh, because the threat has changed and is continuing to change uh, at a pace that is well beyond anything I saw during my career. And so there, there needs to be a response to that in a change in how we train pilots. And, uh, and I've got some ideas of how we can do that in ways that are better than they used to be. And with better tools than, we, than were available when I was doing that as my primary mission uh, for a good portion of my 25 years of service. You know, I, I looked at what was out there and looked at companies like Cubic who are doing things to make a, a blended training environment 
which really brings in the capability to replicate adversaries at scale and replicate the actual capability of the adversaries in a way that's more realistic to, to those who we are trying to train. And, and I decided, hey, I think I want to be a part of that and uh, hopefully advance training for uh, the folks that uh, come after me. I think that's awesome, uh, Colonel. You know, you clearly have a passion for it. And it's one of those things that, um, yeah, I think if you've identified a company and a path forward to help those that are following you, you know, in, in the Air Force, um, man, what a great way to kind of continue to contribute in your own way. Um, So I'm looking forward to chatting with you about what that entails. But I'd also like, because I'm sure our listeners would be keen to hear, and I think this could be a separate discussion. So if you're okay with that, um, I'd love to hear what it was like to transition from an F-16 to an F-35. And even if you didn't go to an operational squadron, or even if you weren't flying it for a long time, I would love to know the comparison of how you compare an F-16 and just what an F-35 is like, because I think a lot of people, you know, it's starting to show up in the Air Force in big numbers now. And so it's it's not unknown, but I think it's still new enough where there's many people that don't appreciate the differences. And I would love to get that perspective from you. Yeah, I'd love to talk about it. I would say overall, uh, in my experiences, especially at a training unit where, for the most part, at Eglin, we were training folks who had already flown another aircraft and were transitioning into the F-35. Right. Uh, So uh, not necessarily over the course of the training itself, because during the course of the training itself, there's while there is, oh, cool, that's a new capability that I didn't have in my other aircraft. There's also a frustration of, I don't really know how to use that new capability that I didn't have in my other aircraft, so I feel like I'm not very competent. But as I talk to them, uh, once they've they've gone out to their operational units and and then they've really developed their expertise in it, I can't tell you a single one of them who is raising their hand going, please just send me back to from whence I came, send me back to my F-15E or my F-16. So it's got to tell you something. It's got to tell you something about the aircraft that there's, uh, uh, you know, the the pilot would tell you if they didn't enjoy flying it and Mm -hmm. uh, you're just not hearing a whole lot of that. So uh, there there are some pluses and minuses, of course, just like with anything, but uh, the, the overall sentiment is it's a more capable aircraft by a factor of magnitude. And we can talk a little bit about why I think that is as we continue this discussion. I think that would be a fun discussion and it's a perfect place to put a bow on this chat. And uh, and yeah, it gives us something to look forward to for our next one. Um, Sounds great. Colonel John Wheeler, retired. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's great to have this time to speak with you. I really appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to our next chat. Awesome. Thanks, awesome. Jerry. Awesome. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Uh, that, my friends, was Colonel John Wheeler, United States Air Force, retired. If you have any questions for us at Go Bold, please reach out to us at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. And we look forward to you joining us on another episode. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. 
This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.